A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. All right, we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about today. And if you are new to the program, first of all, let me welcome you. Yes, we revel in wrong think. And I know it sounds terribly subversive. It sounds like something that should be done, you know, preferably in a deserted warehouse in the shady part of town in the wee hours of the morning out of the sight of the public, right? No, it's, it's nothing nearly that uh, nefarious. It's, it's just a matter of questioning the narratives doing our very best to ascertain what the world is like for ourselves, in in essence, propaganda-proofing ourselves, and then taking what we understand about the world around us where where things need to be fixed, where uh, solutions need to be applied, and doing it. Now, the rub here is that a lot of those solutions apply much closer to home than uh, than what we normally would, would think of as being something worthwhile, right? If it's not in the news, if it's not in the newspapers or on TV, why, it doesn't really matter. Of course, if you focus specifically on what, uh, you know, the the mainstream press chooses to cover, you would probably be under the impression that the most important things in the world at any given moment are happening either in Washington, D.C. or perhaps in Los Angeles or maybe in New York. But, you know, the truth of the, the matter is some of that stuff may affect us, usually indirectly. But a lot of the things that we choose to focus our attention on, the things we choose to be outraged about, are things that, well, really have no direct bearing on us. In other words, they're not something that we can influence. Oftentimes, you know, the political wrangling in Washington, D.C., for instance. It's so much melodrama. And and we, we rarely boil it down to what is really at stake here. So this is this is the essence of what this program is about, questioning the narrative trying to understand the principles that are at stake more so than which party's right on a particular question. Doesn't mean we don't delve into politics. In fact, we're going to spend a little bit of time this hour uh, talking about geopolitics. Now, that's not something that I spend a lot of time focused on primarily because uh, I just don't have that much influence. I know, big surprise. Nobody drops what they're doing, you know, on the other side of the world because what, Brian's trying to call me? Oh, well, I better take his call. But when I do want to know I turn to people like, uh, like, for instance, Pat Buchanan, who, by the way, I agree with Pat on a lot of things. There are some things where he and I absolutely don't see eye to eye. But Pat has been in the saddle long enough that I trust his take on the, the bigger picture geopolitically. And he's got some very interesting things to say about, uh, you know, the, the exchange just last week between uh, uh, President Biden and, you know, corn pop Putin. I don't know if you caught any of the the posturing that took place, but we're going to talk about that coming up. I want to start with a, an essay from Paul Rosenberg, and I'm I'm going to ask you to consider subscribing to his weekly newsletter. It comes to your email inbox. There's no obligation. They don't sell your information. He respects your privacy, but he has been doing a weekly series of essays now for well a couple of months, maybe three months, talking about common fallacies that you and I will encounter when we are engaged in discussion with other people. And, and by engaged in discussion, 
Here's what I'm talking about. You have to be able to make the case for your cause. Assuming you're a person who's found the courage to stand for something. And with cancel culture in full swing, I totally understand why some people may be a little more reluctant than others to, you know, put their foot down and say, here I stand. It makes you a target. Well, Paul Rosenberg has been providing valuable resources in these essays which teach you how to recognize and how to counter the fallacies we we might commonly encounter in the form of pushback from people who disagree with us, whether it's online or whether it's in an in-person discussion. Now, one of the things I want to make really clear, because Paul Rosenberg, I consider one of those, uh, I, I, I consider this guy a mentor in that he is the guy who really helped me turn my efforts away from, well, let's have a great argument to let's actually work to try to change people's hearts or at least get them to consider a point of view that they may not want to consider. And the first thing he taught was lose the need to win. This is not a matter of, well, one of you has to beat the other into submission rhetorically. But a lot of people still think that way. And because of that, you need to know how to protect yourself, even if you're not going on the offensive and you're not, you know, trying to destroy them in in a debate. Does that make sense? So to that end, he puts together these essays and they are super helpful. They help you recognize common fallacies and and other word-borne attacks, ways that people try to shut you down rhetorically. Now, he says some of these can fairly be called fallacies, some of the word-borne attacks. Possibly all of them, as lists of fallacies, can be very extensive. But he says, I'm going to let them stand as they are. What matters is that we know about them and we know how to deal with them. So here's an example of what he's talking about. Once wrong means always wrong. So sometimes people who know you or who know something about you will go to slash and burn tactics to get rid of your opinion, saying something like, well, you once said X, Y, Z, and you were wrong. You're wrong about this, too. Now, Paul Rosenberg says that's a silly statement, of course. We've all been wrong about something in the past. So that rationale could apply to anyone, even though their present opinion was purely correct. It's an emotional slap, and it's most likely an effort to chase other people away from your opinion. Now, you can address this one by first absorbing the blow and then making an appropriate response. And this is what he suggests. You're going to see right away why I love Paul Rosenberg's approach here. For a one-on-one conversation, you can respond, You've made mistakes just like I have, Jim. Is everything you say false, too? Slight pause. Now, shall we consider that facts? For a group discussion or group conversation, this is not too risky. You can say, Look, everyone here has made mistakes, Jim. Are you saying that everything these people believe is false, too? Slight pause. Now, we can either consider the facts or not. Which do you prefer? If you're in a group situation with minimal amount of risk, then you can just say, ah, well, then I guess I'm automatically wrong as you walk away. And if the situation could actually lead to danger, like people getting physically violent, just walk away. In fact, Paul Rosenberg says you probably shouldn't have been there in the first place, so please review your decision-making process on where to go and not go. But you can see why this would be handy, right? It's not so much about winning. It's more about just making sure that you are correctly framing the debate, whether it's for you and the person involved or for the bystanders. Somebody tries to use a rhetorical slap on you like that. Well, you were wrong about this, so you're wrong about uh, you know this other thing, too. You have some some uh, options to pursue here. How about this one? Writing the fear cycle. 
Now, Paul Rosenberg says humans have an inclination toward recognizing threats and then finding ways to evade dealing with them. We say things like, oh, it couldn't really be all that bad or just do as they say and we'll be okay." Now, this is a type of denial and we're very good at it. But what it really comes down to is fear. We're afraid to stand alone. We're afraid to say what we really think and so on. So intelligent manipulators, and particularly those who are looking for long-term victories rather than immediate wins, can ride this weakness to what they want. Just make people afraid. Steer them to your safe choice, which, by the way, everybody else has already chosen. And sadly, it gets worse from there. See, the next step in the fear cycle is internal. Once they've made a first mistake, most people will still vigorously defend their error. No one wants to admit they played the sucker after all. This is how errors perpetuate themselves and end up at crazy extremes. Because humans are immensely creative creatures, able to conjure up one plausible justification after another and at great length. So once a long-term manipulator, or usually a group of manipulators when you get to this level, gets people to make the first error, well, they can keep it going for a long time, especially if they can make examples of the first few brave souls who break with the crowd and condemn the initial error. The solution to this is first to be able to recognize it. Once our eyes are open to this, understanding that it's a perpetually abused human weakness, we'll overcome it. It's confusion that keeps it alive. And of course, he says we need to learn how to stand alone and take pain for doing so. That's not fun, but that's the moment that the but for the moment, that's the price of keeping a free mind. I hope the significance of those last couple of sentences really sinks in so much. I'm, I'm going to repeat it again just because I believe this is this is crucial. And of course, we need to learn how to stand alone and to take pain for doing so. That's not fun. But for the moment, that's the price of keeping a free mind. So I'm not encouraging you. Hey, did you know masochism is great and pain, you know, is really not so bad. In fact, you should be seeking after it. I don't think any of us feels that way. But if you are someone who feels strongly, like there, there is a place where you need, there's a boundary where you need to put your foot down and you need to say, you know, you, I need to speak up or I need to, I need to stand and not do what everybody else is doing. It's, it's not easy to do, at least the first time. And it hurts the first time somebody really lashes out to put you back in your place, right? How dare you bump into the edges of my understanding? We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And by the way, a quick shout out to uh, all the various uh, various platforms on which you can hear this program. Uh, some of you are listening to the live broadcast, which is carried on uh, great networks by the Fed, like the Fed by Ravens Media Network or Loving Liberty Radio Network or let's see, Liberty News Radio Network and I believe Missouri Liberty Radio Network. I'm sorry, I, I haven't talked to Sam out there in a long time, but um, yeah, talk stream live. And of course, everybody who's listening to the uh, to the podcast edition, um, you know, technology has, has thrown a lot of different, uh, you know, weird things our way. But I have to say the the digital revolution 
has made it easier than ever for people like me and like you, if you have a message that needs to be spoken, to find a platform, and in, in this case, to build a platform where you can uh, where you can speak it. I can't tell you how grateful I feel for that, just because I look around and, and the deception that I see on the part of so much of our mass media, whose job is not, by the way, to tell us the truth, but, but it appears more and more it's to, to keep us from actually discovering what the truth is, because that could be bad for business. So I'm not trying to persuade you to one political party or another, or even a political point of view or another, so much as I'm just saying, we've got to be clear and independent thinkers. More so in a time of crisis than at any other time. And it is a time of crisis. You got to know who you are. You got to know what you stand for. I want to go back to Paul Rosenberg's article here about uh, common word attacks. Things that people will use rhetorically to shut you down or create doubt. If not in the people who are watching, you know, from around, but also in you. Here's a good one. Perpetual denial. Paul Rosenberg says another favorite tool of abusers with some type of position or authority is to deny whatever crime or abuse they've been caught in. And they'll proceed with a long line of denial, such as I never did that. All those accounts were for my enemies. They misunderstood me. I was quoted badly and so on. The modern term for this is doubling down. That comes from the world of gambling. It refers to someone losing their first bet, then doubling the same bet again and again and again if necessary. Now, what these people are actually doing is waging a war on your will. They're betting that their combination of denial and authority will make people increasingly uncomfortable and that over time, they'll come up with ways to ignore their crimes. Now, as, as he noted earlier, humans are very creative with their justifications. They're also creative with their evasions. And so if the powerful person can keep their denial going and hopefully ratchet up a bit of fear... Governor Smith will survive this and retain power, and it'll hurt those who try to take him down. Most people will find a way either to justify him, well, his accusers are dirty themselves, or they'll find reasons to evade the subject. Well, it doesn't really even matter in the end, does it? Oh, wait, Hillary Clinton. At this point, what difference does it make? All right. Sorry to dredge up that that, uh, old uh, bit of baggage. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, bear in mind, please, That these perpetual denials are running at more or less all times and have a long history of working very well. As with the fear cycle, the solution to this problem is first to really see it, to understand that it is a war of wills and the deck is stacked against the individual. If the person doubling down is part of a governing system, as they usually are, they not only have power enough to create fear, but they have the inertia of the system itself. In addition, government-aligned organizations like news channels who need access to important stories, leaked information, and favors will ultimately befriend power. Ooh, that's a good explanation. People have asked me, and I've I've struggled. How how can you describe the way this uh, relationship works with the press and politicians? And now that I think of it, I think Paul Rosenberg is one of the ones who introduced me to the symbiotic relationship between those two. Politicians need crises. To justify whatever it is they're doing to uh, either enlarge or maintain their their hold of power. The press is very, very good at creating a crisis. You don't believe me? Just to, you know, for instance, tune in. Put, Put on TV tonight, whatever the network news is, and just watch how they lead out. I promise you. The first stories that they lead out with will be breaking news, this breaking story. Wow, you know, there's there's all kinds of exciting colors and effects flying across the screen. This is breaking. This is so important. It's a crisis. 
And so politicians know that if the press can deliver enough fear and anxiety to the people, well, the people are going to come running to the politician, to the politician class for, for solutions. You see how it works. Anyway, back to uh, back to Paul Rosenberg's essay. As with the fear cycle, he says the solution to this problem is first to really see it, to understand that it is a war of wills. And the hard part of this is dealing with friends and neighbors who are in the process of surrendering their will to the lying leader. That's not as abstract as it once was, right? I mean, we all know people who firmly believe, oh, Donald Trump was the worst thing ever and Joe Biden is the best thing ever. When in truth, they're both pretty flawed human beings acting on behalf of primarily political parties, which may or may not have your best interest and my best interest at heart. Sorry to be so harsh, but I'm not a fan of either side of that big coin of the Washington, D.C. establishment. And so there are people who will give their allegiance and surrender their will. And fighting this, in the experience of Paul Rosenberg, he says, is a very poor use of time. If you can reason with the person early in the process, well, you can have some success. But if they've already decided to give in, you're better off forgetting about it and preparing them for the next battle of wills. He says, I think it's healthy for us to accept that while human beings are exceedingly promising beings, they also carry weaknesses. And they're a long way from full development. We're fighting our way out of a primitive situation. And by accepting that as a truth, our efforts to think clearly and well become much less painful and far more rewarding. Please consider subscribing to his free man's perspective newsletter. All you need is an email address once a week, maybe twice a week. You'll see emails land in your inbox. This man has a message that is well worth considering. And it has been uh, very transformational um, in the sense that it has it's transformed the way that I approach how I do what I do, because I really do want to I want to bring truth and I want to bring light to people who are actively looking for those things. And you can't do that when you're you know condemning them as well. You know, if you were smart enough, you'd have figured this out. You know, you can't do it from that uh, that superior position of I am so much better than you and I am so much smarter and here I'm going to beat you down rhetorically, you know, just to prove it. I've been there. And while it was part of the process of becoming who I am today, it's not something I would want to return to. I've learned from it. So I offer this for your consideration, and I think Paul may be one of those uh, great resources, um, just if for nothing else, to teach how to approach difficult and even uh, um, emotional topics that, that are very you know triggering to some people, how to do it productively in a way that allows you to plant seeds of truth without having to, to wrestle someone into submission, and, and to do it without bringing more anger to an already volatile situation. Knowing when to walk away from an argument, knowing when to engage and how to engage, and most importantly, knowing how to speak the truth with love, losing that need to win, taking the hits, keeping on smiling, and letting people come to the truth at their own pace. I've seen it work enough times I've stopped counting. And it's not that suddenly someone agrees with me on everything. Nope. Nope. They're, they're thinking for themselves, which means uh, they're, they're not going to agree with me on everything. But things that we've discussed that I've handled in the in the fashion that uh, that Paul Rosenberg has recommended with that uh, desire actually to bring something of value to them if they want it and letting them come to it on their own terms. 
It's astonishing how many times people will say, I can see your point of view, even if they don't agree. They can at least see there's another way of looking at this. And it's, you know, not the product of insane thinking that should be, you know, institutionalized or perhaps even eradicated from the earth. It also leaves you feeling a lot more at peace at the end of the day because you can actually read things on social media. And I guarantee, you know, being human, I still see things that kind of trip my switch and I find myself reaching for the keyboard. I want to give this pithy response. And then something stays in my hand and I'm like, okay, is it really going to accomplish anything of value? Oftentimes the answer is no. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by Monticello College, hslamo.com, and also by uh, True Light. I'm sorry, Pure Light, the next generation of uh, LED light bulbs. I have some fascinating things to tell you about. And by the way, you can visit these sponsors by going to the links I provide in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It's uh, right there at the end of each day's show notes. Just uh, look for the show notes for March 22nd, and you'll find all of them right there. Well, let's open up the phones here. 801-331-8113. I've got Trucker Ray on the line. Ray, it has been a long time. (laughs) <laughs> Brian, oh, it may be a long time, but I have listened to you, your, your uh, reruns at nighttime. But I'm driving days again for a while. Does that feel pretty good to be back in the daylight? It feels really good, yes. It, it, in fact, um, my wife didn't even know I was growing a beard. I had to shave it today. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> I, on, on behalf of the beardly, you have my condolences. <laughs> yes, it, it's it's hard to, to be on a different schedule than everyone in your life. Really hard. So tell me, what are you thinking about these days? Well, listen, as far as what you're talking about, you know, stand for something, stand alone, stand for pain. To me, you're describing describing the Son of God. And, and you know, yeah. he, he lived a life where he was one with his Father. And, you know, he came to save a dying world. And, you know, just quickly, you know, today I have to say that, you know, the Bible is is a history book of good and evil, of right and wrong, of success and failure. And and just quickly, I'd have to say that um, the Old Testament, there's a pattern of following God, living his laws, being successful and peaceful in a prospering society, and then the children slowly giving those things up. Then they're, they're captured by the Babylonians or the Syrians or on and on. They're taken captive. They're, they're kind of, their whole world falls apart. Then eventually they go back and they start living God's laws and they become successful again. Backward, forward, uh, pendulum. And I think, you know, we're, we're, the churches in the 50s used to be full. And, and I think... You know, now we're swinging back to, to you know, turn, turning from God. And all I can say is, is, you know, stand for something, stand alone, stand, you know, be in pain. 
you know, we have to keep speaking the truth and taking the high road like you always do. You know, that's why I, I just, you know, live for your show. Ray, I appreciate it. I hope you understand, though. I'm not telling people that, uh, hey, you know, you know, if you're not feeling pain, you're not doing it right. It's just we have to understand the times we live in are are such that uh, for a person to really be committed to the truth. And I mean, like have boundaries as far as I will not go so far as to deny reality. um, You've got to be willing to suffer some abuse. And it's been that way before. And thank goodness for people, you know, like Martin Luther and others who stood firm at a time when they really were needed to stand firm. But uh, we don't like to we don't like to think that heavy lifting will ever fall to us. Unfortunately, it appears that it has. Yes. And Gandhi also, you know, and on and on. And look at President Trump. You know, look at the pain he stood for for so long that he, he, he changed. He, he was bringing back people out of poverty into the middle class. You know, it was hard for him, and his family was attacked. You know, so so eventually, how bad does it have to get until people wake up and want to turn back to, to you know, building the principles of what builds a, a happy, sustainable, growing society? We yep. have to stand strong and speak, keep speaking the truth until they turn back, you know, and we get, then they'll start listening to the message of proven success. I'm with you, Ray. And what you said earlier about um, it really helps when God is part of that equation. I, I feel that same way. And I think that's something the founding generation understood. They didn't write religion into the system of government, but they certainly allowed for the robust expression of uh, religion. And they trusted religion to teach the masses of people right from wrong so that they could govern themselves as moral people do rather than have to be governed from without. Yes, I was weak in the ways of the world, serving the devil. I didn't know it. But, you know, faith is a power. Belief is a power. Hope is a power. You know, when we turn back to God and start, you know, uh, living his powers in our life, then we become powerful. We can't do it without him. He, he teaches the way of, of happiness. But it is painful, that, that, that pathway. But it's worth it. The reward is worth it. Yep, I'm with you 100%. Great to hear from you, Ray. Thank you, my friend. Thanks so much for the call. We don't get as many phone calls. And, and I, I, look, I need to come clean here. Um, I'm happy to take calls. I'm happy to talk with, with my listeners. There's times when uh, the time is limited and there's so much to cover that I, I wonder if that time isn't better spent. It's not because I like the sound of my voice. It's because I really believe I have some good, solid information that can contribute to your understanding of the world. So if you don't hear a lot of calls, it's not about uh, because, you know, I got to be in the spotlight here. It's because I have lots of information I'm trying to share in a pretty limited amount of time. Now, I've mentioned my show notes at the com. You will find that I have links to all the different articles about the different subjects or different guests that I have on. I would strongly recommend take the time to look at those. I mean, you don't have to read every single one of them, but I try to pick stuff that will at least offer a a good, credible perspective. Something for your consideration. You don't have to believe it, but it may add to your understanding. I got a couple quick ones I want to touch on here. Um, One thing that I think we have to understand that, that the very basic understanding of of, uh, how to work within society is you have two ways of dealing with people. 
When human beings when human beings deal with one another, you can use either cooperation or you can use coercion. One of them relies on persuasion. The other one relies on force, most often government force. Now, we're all getting a pretty good object lesson in this these days as we see more and more things becoming politicized and subject to government force. And we're talking about areas of our lives where the government never had any shred of authority, much less moral authority to start dictating. You will do this. You will do that. You will say this. You will think that. It's an interesting time. And I think there's a better way. And I'm grateful for people like, for instance, uh, Anthony Davies, one of the co-hosts of the Words and Numbers podcast. He has a very worthwhile take on how the right to exit, meaning if a, if a relationship or a, uh, a venture isn't working well for you, you have the right to peacefully withdraw from it. Government doesn't give you that option. But that right to exit is the basis for a prosperous and peaceful society. Here are a couple of the things he notes. Whenever humans come together to do anything, they organize themselves either according to the principles of cooperation or principles of coercion. Cooperative ventures run the gamut from neighborhood associations to congregations to civic organizations to markets. Coercive ventures typically fall into one of two groups, depending on your perspective, uh, depending that he says, depending on your perspective, either are very different or very similar government and organized crime. While a democratically elected government may look like a cooperative venture, it's only cooperative from the perspective of the majority. To everyone else, it is decidedly coercive. And he says the important, in, the important difference between cooperation and coercion is that when things stop working in a cooperative venture, one is free to leave. That ability to walk away fuels a dynamic process that leads to innovation and improvement. Now, by contrast, the inability to walk away from coercive ventures leads to stagnation and ossification. For contrasting examples, compare FedEx to the U.S. Postal Service or Southwest to Amtrak, private schools to public schools or obtaining a replacement debit card to obtaining a replacement driver's license. I'd say there's a pretty big difference in every single one of those. So he says those more trusting of government say that despite government's flaws, it's better to trust important activities to coercion rather than to the vagaries of cooperation. And so across the planet, we have governments controlling in full or in part health care, education, power generation, communication infrastructure, and all manner of other essential activities. Yet there's something more essential than any of these that we routinely leave to cooperation. Language. The ability to exchange thoughts from the basic and immediate, I'm hungry. To the complex and far-reaching, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal. He says that's more important than health, education, or anything else one might conceive. Anthony Davies says because without the ability to exchange thoughts with each other, we cannot bring any of these other things into being. We're going to come back to this in just a few moments, and I hope it's something that you'll take the time to explore just a little bit further. I'm including a link to Anthony Davies' article from the American Institute for Economic Research in the show notes. And if you have time, I would encourage you to make time. Check out the Words and Numbers podcast. Click subscribe and consider yourself well-fed at least once a week when they release a new episode. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, thank you for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. When my friend Carl, or as we call him, the C-Train, is listening. Hey, C-Train. We raise our uh, listening audience up to, I believe we are up to nearly six listeners now. And that's worldwide. I track these things. And, uh, and I'm not counting my mom. So I'm, I'm seeing real growth here, and I'm excited. And, and Carl, I count uh, every time you tell your kids to listen in so they can hear me mention your name. Um, well, I count them as a momentary spike in the audience. All right. I kid. Nonetheless, I am grateful you're part of the audience. I was sharing an article here from Anthony Davies. He is a, uh, I believe he is a professor of uh, economics. He is. He's also the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. He teaches uh, economics at Duquesne University. He is the co-host of the Words and Numbers podcast with uh, James R. Harrigan. And uh, both of these guys are, they are a force to be reckoned with individually you put them together and they are just truly informative uh very thought-provoking and quite funny too so if if you'd like uh, your facts with a little bit of humor i think you'd find this a good fit but he talks about the difference between cooperation and coercion and one of the things i wanted to bring up here was he talks about the beauty of cooperation especially as it applies in language this is some place that we we cooperate all the time and he gives a, he gives a, an example here. He says, uh, as a product of cooperation, language evolves, just like markets. So lingual entrepreneurs invent new words, phrases, and grammars, just like customers in the marketplace. People try out inventions where they sense improvement, people repeat. And where people find words, phrases, and grammars too cumbersome, ambiguous, or unpleasant, they stop repeating. It's totally voluntary. Just like people's changing needs and preferences cause them to abandon old products for new, so too do people abandon old ways of speaking for new. And he says all of this should be alarming. We construct our legal documents, encyclopedia, uh, technical manuals, and all matter of vital documents using words, phrases, and grammars that evolved and continue to evolve at the whim of people involved in the cooperative venture of communicating. His point being, governments have little to no control over the matter. One such major evolution is taking place right now in English, and that's the evolution of the singular they. While this pronoun has a rich etymology, what matters to most speakers is how well the word serves our current needs. And here we face a problem. On the one hand, we need gender-inclusive pronouns. Using he to mean either a male or person of any gender makes non-males feel as if they are linguistic afterthoughts. It is dehumanizing. He, she is cumbersome, not entirely inclusive, and not a single word anyway. But on the other hand, evidence suggests that they isn't a good solution either. In the mid-1300s, people used they as both a singular neutral and plural neutral pronoun. In the mid-1700s, usage evolved, and he took on the double duty of a single neutral pronoun and a singular male pronoun, leaving they as a strictly plural neutral pronoun. That's the way teachers and editors corrected speaking and writing until recently. The Oxford English Dictionary has now given its blessing to the singular neutral, they. Now, Antony Davies points out to be useful. Language must conform simultaneously to two contradictory principles. The first is that a language needs to be standard. When a speaker converts a thought into a string of words, those words need to recreate that same thought in his listener's mind. And that requires that we agree on what the words mean. 
No language accomplishes this perfectly, but other things equal, the closer a language comes to this ideal, the more useful it is. The second and contradictory principle is that to be useful, a language needs to be able to evolve so as to express new ideas and to express old ideas more efficiently. In short, the most useful language is one that's simultaneously fixed and fluid. And that brings us to the transformation of they from singular and plural to plural and now back to singular and plural. Why should any other word other than a noun distinguish, distinguish between singular and plural? And he says, while we're at it, why do we waste so much time learning noun-verb agreement? I, you, they walk, but he or she walks. I am, but he or she is. Well, you and they are. If language is a cooperative phenomenon, why didn't such seemingly useless complexity die out over time? And the answer is the same forces of profit and loss that weed out inefficient businesses in another cooperative phenomenon, markets, should be at play here. The profit is successful communication. The loss is the cost of navigating the rules. And he says it's tempting to say that the complicated noun-pronoun-verb agreement is akin to a market failure. The communication market should have weeded this stuff out, but didn't. But that's lazy thinking. If a costly phenomenon persists in a cooperative environment, it's more likely that there is an as-yet-unseen benefit that outweighs the cost. One possibility is that the complexity evolved as a form of error correction. If I say, I am watching football tonight, but you don't hear the I, you can infer that I said I because of the, the verb form am. The verb and noun agreement provides the opportunity for error correction. And if this sounds a bit far-fetched, he says, consider the supporting evidence that, if not definitive, is at least interestingly circumstantial. The second person pronoun, you. We've long had the same problem with you that we're now creating with they. You is both singular and plural. And that double duty causes problems, particularly when someone is talking to a person within a group. When the boss says, you need to pick up the pace. Is it you personally who's in trouble, or is it everybody in the room? Sometimes the only way to know is to watch the boss's eyes. To have to rely on sight to clarify whether the speaker's you is singular rather or plural is incredibly inefficient and error-prone. We know the double duty we require of you is a problem, because pretty much everywhere English is spoken, people have developed colloquial variations to distinguish the singular from the plural. In Pittsburgh, yins is the plural form of you. In the South, it's y'all. In New Jersey, yous. Elsewhere, it's youans, you guys, you lot, and ye. I haven't used that one for a while. Ye, children of the household, gather up the trash. The refuse man cometh. Anyway. These variations have evolved precisely because language is a cooperative phenomenon in which the people have found a need to distinguish between the singular and plural pronouns. Anthony Davies says if that need exists with the second person, it will also exist with the third. So he says it's time we had a gender-inclusive form of the third-person pronoun. But evidence, evidence suggests that asking they to pick up the slack by doing double duty isn't the right answer. But he says I may be wrong. And that's the beauty of cooperation. Ultimately, he says, my opinion doesn't matter. As we've done for centuries, we will rely on hundreds of millions of English speakers employing trial and error. Each individual will adopt solutions that appear to work and discard those that don't. Better solutions will, volu will naturally spread in usage, while poor solutions will wither from disuse. And together, through voluntary cooperation, we'll find the right answer. And he says, and if we're willing to trust something as supremely important as our language to cooperation... 
How much more willing should we be to trust cooperation to our education, health care, wages, and the many other things we think are so important as to require coercion? I hope you'll check it out. Now, I've got a couple other articles here that I want to just briefly touch on. Um, this is uh, this is the latest one from uh, Robert E. Wright from the American Institute for Economic Research, the final push to restore freedom. If you have been feeling like I am on the losing end of a battle and have been for some time because you stand for freedom and you see the direction that uh, Leviathan seems to be taking, you should read this article. You really should read it and understand that uh, actually... We are seeing a resurgence, both politically, culturally, intellectually. The good guys are coming back, and the message of freedom is resonating. Probably because a lot of people have had their first taste of what it's like to have that taken from them involuntarily. Well worth your while. One other article here, actually two other articles. There's a Pat Buchanan article, Have We Not Enough Enemies? Worth your time if you want to get a good sense of what's going on geopolitically. And I'm going to have to spend some more time on this next one, uh, probably in the next day or so. But James Bovard has a very hard-hitting article about the federal bill H.R. 1, which would legalize all of the irregularities from the last election. Now, those of you who have listened to me for any length of time, you know, I don't put a lot of faith in what's considered the uh, sacrament of our civic religion, that being voting. I'm of the opinion that if it actually did the good that we are led to believe it does, that somebody would have outlawed it a long time ago. So I've doubted the values, uh, the value of elections for some time. And I think the 2020 election just confirmed to us that the system itself is rotten. It's ripe for manipulation. And despite the protests of people, oh, no, no, this was the most honest and open election of our lifetimes. um, I'm just not buying it. Particularly due to the fact that there are people out there. I think I'm seeing now where um, someone made the suggestion from the federal level. We should require all business owners to affirm that they support the results of the 2020 election. Since when did you ever need the did you ever need to swear an oath that something was reality? Whatever happened to self-evident truths? You can see why I'm suspicious. This is The Brian Hyde Show.